G'day, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host, Tiffany Cook, and I'm very excited to be bringing you this episode. This was an incredible conversation, and I feel so incredibly blessed to have been able to be in it and to be putting it out there to the world for you guys to listen to as well. I hope that you get as much out of listening as I did sitting in it. And I just want to say a massive shout out and thank you to John for sharing what he did with me, the way he did with me and and with you guys and for all of the work that he's doing now. So let me get out of the way and you can go and enjoy the show. John Lowe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's very. I'm very excited to meet you. Now you've just given me the elevator pitch on how you and you and Mr. Mark Thomas, or as you refer to him, Tomo, yep. how you guys um, went through squad together. Do you want to tell the rest of the world that? Now I'm just going to make you double up because that was interesting. That's right. Mark and I have both been in Victoria Police for 27 years, which is a bit scary that it's been that long for both of us. Where does time go, by the way? I don't know. I wish I did. I wish someone would explain that to me and it just seems to accelerate the further you go. Yeah. So 27 years ago, so back in the mid-90s, we both joined Victoria Police, didn't know each other. But when we went through the police academy in, in Melbourne, we started on the same day. He was in one class. I was in another. So they call the classes squads. So they call them sister squads. So we've been sister squad mates for 27 years. And then, you know, you went through the academy, which back then was 20 weeks. And we had the odd class together, but not many. And then when we graduated, we both worked at the main Melbourne police station in the CBD at the old Crown Casino spot and did a bit of work there for a couple of years before we went our separate ways. Um, But, you know, stayed in touch like a lot of us do. Yeah. yeah. Are you still working in the police for Victoria Police now? Yeah, we both still are. Um, And strangely enough, we're both back back in the city at the main police centre, but that's got a lot of different units in it, so we work in very different units. Yeah, right. How's the career been? Interesting. Great. Ups and downs, but that's, I think, for most people, that's that's life. Yeah. And our career, you know, as in most police, you get to see some pretty horrendous things and you see people at the worst times of their lives at times, so that, that has an impact with all of us over time, um, it yeah. does get to all of us. So, yeah. yeah. What was the what was the draw card for you for for walking into that type of career? So, mine's an interesting story because I'd always wanted to join either the Air Force or the Army and be a pilot. So, I actually got into the Army on pilot's course. Yeah. My eyesight deteriorated while I was on, and mm. I ended up failing. Now, very tough course the pass rate back then was only about 50%. So it could have been me or it could have been the eyesight or it could have been a combination, and it's something I'll never know. Yep. But I'd already had a long-term plan, and that was do my time in the Army, let it take me wherever it takes me around Australia, around the world, but then eventually come back to Melbourne and join Victoria Police and fly helicopters for Victoria Police. So that was a long-term plan, but because I failed, the helicopter side of it being a pilot was out of the question. Um, But I had a a mate that I'd run into who I'd gone to high school with, and he said, you should join, you'd be good, blah, blah, blah. blah. So I actually met him before I got into the Army, and then that memory just sort of triggered after I failed and went, oh, well, why not? Let's give it a crack. Let's go and help the community. And I guess I'd grown up in a military family, so wanting to help and sort of defend the country, defend people, look after people was always part of who I was. So, mm. yeah, that's what made me join. And I, I love that. It. Yeah, it's loved it. Here's a fun fact. I just turned 40 in May and a friend of mine who's doing their licence got me uh, a flight, first, uh, first-time flight experience flying oh. one of the helicopters here. John, I'd never been in a helicopter before. It was overstimulating, overwhelming, terrible, amazing. Adren- I had adrenaline pumping through my system for a, a good 12 hours. Yep. And... But wow, it's yeah. that's terrifying stuff. I, I've still got some absolutely fabulous memories of it. It's one of the best times of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love Great that. Stuff. Great stuff. 
Oh, that is very cool, very cool. But we are we are talking today about a very, especially for, for the Code 9 Foundation conversations that we have, quite a different topic and I am, I'm really, well, I was about to, I was about to use the word excited and I don't really think it fits. Um, it, it doesn't, no. No, it doesn't fit. I don't even Intrig- know. What- intrigued is usually what I get. Yes, I am intrigued. I'm fascinated by – I'm not even going to give everyone a spoiler alert. I'm going to let you do that. I'm going to spoil yep. nothing. Normally I spoil everything that I'm involved <laughs> with, so I'm going, to, I'm going to do the opposite and um, and hand over to you again and let you tell the story. Um, thanks so much. So apologies to all of your listeners that it might get a bit tearful at times. They might find it a bit upsetting at times, but – what I'd like to let them know before I even get into the story is it's got a really good ending. So in 2014, I was at work. I was actually at a work conference and my wife knew not to call me. So had the mobile phone, but unusually for me, I had it completely silent. I'd normally at work put on vibrate, but it's completely silent, turned upside down because it was an all-day work conference at a just before two in the afternoon, I don't know why. It's one of those things I'll never know the answer to, but I actually picked up my mobile phone and turned it over and realised I'd missed a call from my wife by about a minute, maybe two. Really weird. So I thought that's unusual. She knows where I am. If she's working and shouldn't be contacted, I know that. And on that day, she knew the same for me. So I thought if she's trying to ring me, something's not right. So I very quietly got up. As I'm leaving out the conference room door, I see my phone starting to ring again in front of me. So it's her. So I've obviously picked it up. My wife's name was Louise. She's in tears and explains to me that something's happened to her that she doesn't know what it is. She'd felt or heard a pop in her head or the back of her head. And that had happened after she'd been teaching that day. She was a psychologist and was teaching uh, for Deakin University down at their Dandenong hub. And on her way through the shopping centre and then into the car park where she'd parked, that's when it's happened. So there's panic in her voice and she's clearly upset. And as much as, you know, with my police career, I've been through some things you still start to panic yourself because this one means a lot more because it's tied to me. Mm. So I've spoken to Louise and said, look, I'll get to you. Don't ask me how because I didn't have my car, but I said, I'll get to you. Whereabouts are you? And she's explained that she's at the Dandenong Shopping Centre car park, which I'd never been to in my life. I said, I'll find you somehow. But you're going to have to get off the phone. You're going to have to ring an ambulance because something's not right. And you know that, being a psych and having done some medical studies. She didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but we had no other choice. I said, because you're going to have to explain to the ambos where you are. So she's done that. While she's, you know, while we've got off the phone, I've gone back into the conference. I've got one of my work friends who I've called my angel ever since. Her name is Jenny. And I've said, I need you to drive me somewhere now. Very quietly, didn't want to disturb the conference at all, but people are sort of looking and I guess it's a room full of cops. They know when things are not quite right. You get that sixth sense kicking in and people are sort of looking and there's a bit of a hush, even though it's a conference. We get into Jenny's car, which is down in the lower ground car park. By the time we got back up and I've rung her again, the ambulance is en route. I spoke to her the whole way that Jenny drove me there. Ambulance arrived. I'm trying to think what could be going wrong. I'm actually thinking Louise had a stroke, but there was no slurred speech. And she knew what was happening to her. Even she sort of thought nothing's going wrong with my body as far as a stroke's concerned. There were a couple of other things, and all she could do is explain that she's got this massive headache, and I still to this day imagine her wiping across her forehead as she's saying this to me over the phone. And she said it's pain that she's never, ever had before, worse than childbirth, all that sort of stuff. So uh, Jenny gets me there. We find Louise. The way we found her was we actually found the ambulance. 
because they got to her. So we spotted the ambulance pretty easily. They've done their initial treatment of Louise. She's conscious but in a lot of pain, In like I said, in the head. They don't know what's going on. Louise is then put into the ambulance and they, I said, where are you taking? They said, down in our hospital. It's not even five minutes away. So they've taken her to the hospital and I've grabbed her car, said thanks to Jenny and driven to the hospital. Gone in there. By the stage I've got in there, the initial triage of Louise by the doctors, they know something's not right, but they can't quite put their finger on it either. Um, they said, look, we'll get some scans done. We'll find out. Uh, so I'm standing there beside the bed with Louise. She's reclining back on about a 45-degree angle in the bed, uh, just in the normal ER. And she was back on that 45-degree angle because whatever was going on, that was the least amount of pain, even though all the pain meds they'd given her were, weren't doing much. Mm. Can't, you know, you lose track of how much time passes, and it probably wasn't long. But at one point she says, oh, I think I'm going to be sick. And sure enough, two seconds afterwards, she's thrown up. So I've yelled out to the nurse who's come running over, given Louise a sick bag, just folded up the blankets, given her a new one. She goes, I'm getting the doctor now. I'll be back. So I'm sitting there doing the husbandly thing, holding her. She had long hair, so I'm holding the hair out of the road. And the nurse gets 15 feet from the bed and Louise just crashes onto my left shoulder. I've just screamed at the nurse, she's crashed, she's crashed. The nurses race back over, hit the emergency alarm, and the place turned to crap. I basically got pushed out of the road, which was fine. They've ended up moving Louise into one of the biggest suites to treat her. They've shoved me in a, in a chair in the corner. They've ended up having to intubate her. They've said something seriously wrong. We need to stabilise her first and then we'll get her in and get scans done, MRIs, CAT scans, whatever we need, ASAP. Once they actually got her stabilised and before they moved her, the, the head doctor comes over and she goes, look, do you want to come and see her and say hello or whatever? I don't know how much she's aware of you, though. Um, I've gone over to Louise. Her eyes were open but just closing. And I just sort of looked at her and I sort of knew something horrendous is going on. And I just said, I love you, please don't go. Now, it turns out they were probably the last words she ever heard. Um, shortly after that, they've taken Louise off and got her scanned. Um, and that takes some time, obviously. They then bring her back into that same uh, main suite in the ER. The doctors have pulled me aside and said, look, we need to transfer her to the Monash Medical Centre. It looks like she's had a major aneurysm bleed. She needs surgery. I can't remember whether they said it looks bad or good, whatever, but I knew it wasn't good. So they've arranged all of that. Time's ticking by. As they're putting Louise into the back of the ambulance, and, you know, and by this stage, a couple of hours in total has gone past. You just don't realise it, but a couple of hours has gone past with all of this. As they're putting Louise into the back of the ambulance, um, and Tomo would know this look along with pretty much every copper that's been around long enough, you know the look on the doctors and nurses' faces when things are really grim, and that's the look they had. And, and I... At that point, it's like, I think I've just lost my wife. It crossed my mind. I distinctly remember it because I just I knew that look. And, and I'm sure if people had to see me in the past as a police officer, I've probably had that look myself. And doctors and nurses would understand it even better. So they've taken her to the Monash Medical Centre. I've jumped in Louise's car and flown down there as well got taken around and the neurosurgeon came out and saw me. Um, I had to wait a while because I was doing more scans. He said, look, we're about to take Louise into surgery. I'll be doing the surgery. It will take about an hour and a half. She's had a major bleed. And he goes, in fact, she's had three from what we can determine. The first major bleed when the aneurysm first let go was when she was walking to her car. 
and that's when she felt or heard the pop. So at that point, there's already blood that her body's you know, heart's pumping around, starts breeding into the sorry, bleeding into the brain cavity. The second time it let loose was actually when she collapsed under my shoulder in the emergency room. And then they said they were pretty sure that she's had a third one en route between the two hospitals. Now, I don't know what occurred then, but clearly something happened in that ambulance that's led them, you know, something's happened. So the, the surgery took about two and a half hours. In that time, I'm ringing my best friend, Louisa's parents, Louisa's sister. I've had to get friends to look after her two boys, my two stepsons. They were 11 going on 12 and 17 going on 18 at this stage. So, yeah, surgery took about two and a half hours. By that stage, my best mate's there. I can't remember whether Louise's parents were there at that stage. I'm not sure. They probably were. The surgeon was really good. He couldn't have been better. He was blunt because he needed to be, but he did it with empathy. The simple message that I'll never forget is he said, look, the woman that you know is no longer with us. Uh, if Louise survives this, she's changed. There's been some significant brain damage. Um, it's now just a matter of whether she survives. But he said it's unlikely. He said we won't know till the morning. If you believe in miracles, start praying. So we're all allowed to go into the ICU just to see her which obviously was a bit shocking for everybody, myself included, because she's unconscious. There's tubes and wires and all that that everybody, you know, you see it in the movies and stuff. Everybody's seen it. That's exactly what she looked like. Didn't want to leave, but it's like I've got to get the boys home. I need to get them to bed. I need to try and help everyone else out as long as and myself as well. And staying there overnight wasn't going to do anything. But Louise's mum and her sister stayed that night and because they insisted on staying with her, which was fine. So we've gone home. We've come back in the morning. There's no change, which was the worst thing because no change meant the, the clock's ticking. Yeah. So during that day, so it happened, initially it happened on a Thursday, so on the Friday, I'm ringing some of her close friends, but then her phone's ringing and my phone's ringing because a couple of people we knew had put things on Facebook. And a couple of people said, look, you know, in, in simple terms, hey, everyone pray for Louise or whatever. And not that either of us were religious, but it was lovely that they were saying that. Mm. So then I've got friends um, that live in WA ringing what's going on and, and one of her best friends had moved to WA a few years ago, so I'd actually rung her. So we've got family, friends, all that sort of ringing, coming to the hospital right throughout the day. About five, sometime between 5 and 5.30 that afternoon, Louise stopped breathing on her own. So the machines kept her alive. I'd already spoken, well, I'd already spoken to one of the ICU nurses and Louise and I had discussed everything. We are both talkers, and one of the things we'd both spoken about when we first met was organ donation, and we both signed up when we got our driver's licences, and we'd had a good discussion about it, and I just happened to remember that, and I thought, I know what she wants. If she's not going to be with us, she's going to want to help. She's going to want people to benefit from her loss because that's what she was. She was just that sort of person. So Gavin, who was the organ donation specialist nurse, who was magnificent. I've never met him since those two days. He is a very special man, along with all of those specialised staff. I've met with him and told him what Louise would want, and he said, look, thank you. The way the process is, even though at the time my heart's just ripped out, he said, I can't do anything until the doctors have formally pronounced her no longer with us but I can start getting some things ahead of time um, to hopefully alleviate a bit of the stress for the rest of the family and, you know, to make things a bit easier 
for the whole process. So 5.30, like I said, 5, 5.30 that afternoon, she stops breathing on her own. So technically at that point, she's no longer with us. There's no brain activity. But until the doctors formally pronounced her deceased, and that takes two doctors independently, she's actually not deceased. It's Friday night. It's my National Medical Centre. The ICU goes silly that night. They didn't get to her that night. They had higher priorities because she's not with us, but they can't get to her to say that. So they actually don't get to pronounce her no longer with us until a Saturday. And once that was done, we sat down with Gavin and one of the other organ donation specialists, and we went through the process of saying what um, Louise's wishes were, which is where I am today in talking to you because this is all about Louise. This is Louise's story, not mine. So we went through that, and that, that process was difficult, but at the same time easy, and this is the thing that I want to educate people on. It was easy because I knew what Louise's wishes were in wanting, number one, to be an organ donor. That was straight up but also knowing what she was happy to donate and what she wasn't happy to donate helped as well. I wanted her two boys to be part of the process, um, despite the youngest one only being 11 going on 12. I knew the 17-year-old could handle it, very emotionally chill, particularly for a boy of that age. Um, I wanted her parents involved and I wanted her sister involved, and not necessarily for the decisions, but I did want them involved, and if – they didn't agree with something. I wanted everyone to have an, a chance to say something, and I, I kept it simple. I got Gavin to explain the whole process before we actually did the paperwork, and I basically kept it simple. I just said to everybody, look, I know what Louise's wishes were. If I know the answers to some of these, I'm just going to go yes or no, depending on what I knew what she wanted. But if anybody disagrees, I need you to speak up straight away. And if you don't want something to be donated or for Louise to donate it, say no. I don't want there to be any discussion because I don't want there to be any family issues in the years to come. And I don't know how I had that little bit of common sense at the time. Now, for us, we were really lucky because we actually never had that happen. We didn't have any disagreements. So not to be trying to be too clinical, it was literally, okay, Gavin started, and it was like, okay, so heart, yes, Louise would want to donate her heart. Lungs, yes. Kidneys, yes. So we're going through those, and then eyes came up, and I went, no, and the boys go, no, no, mum, we knew mum didn't want to donate her eyes. So that was, and, and pretty much everybody was. And Louise, like a number of other people, um, feel like the eyes are almost the window to your soul. And that's the reason why she didn't want her eyes. Now, I know a lot more about it now, and it's not like taking your entire eye out. It's just helping people with cataracts and things like that. So it's actually very, very minor what happens to your eyes, and nobody would know. Oh, wow. The one thing, or there's a couple of things that we didn't know, and Louise and I had never talked about, was that there's an opportunity then not just to donate organs, but to donate other tissues. Now, we all know skin's an organ, but skin is one of them that most people don't think about. So there's an opportunity to donate skin, particularly for burn victims. There's also the opportunity to donate other tendons and ligaments and bone tissue. So Gavin said the first one he said was, okay, so skin. And I went, right, I'm, excuse me, I'm not fully aware of this. Can you please explain what happens so that we can make a decision? So Gavin explained it's taken from the lower back buttocks area. It's very thin layers of skin. If you were to look at someone afterwards, he goes, it looks like light sunburn. The skin just ends up a bit pinkish. That's it. It's not very intrusive at all. It's actually quite unobtrusive in what they do. And it's usually for burn victims, um, but it can be used for other types of skin grafts where people have injuries and they need skin grafts, but quite often burn victims. So I didn't know the answer. I'm sitting there in silence, as was everybody else in the room. 
and I'm thinking it through and I'm thinking it through and I'm getting very close to going, you know what, I think she'd want to do it. So I'm getting close to saying yes. And then sure enough, the 11-year-old pipes up and beats me by about five seconds and says, not mummy's skin, she was beautiful. As soon as he has said that, his older brother sitting next to him has fully supported it straight away. It was almost like the youngest one started it and the oldest joined him straight away and said, no, agreed, not mum's skin. And I had to take my own advice that I said at the start, if anybody says no, it's a no. And I said, okay, that's a no, Gavin. Let's move on. So Louise didn't donate her eyes or her skin. He then went on to ligaments, tendons, bone tissue, and we all said yes to those. So we finished going through that process and you signed all the documents. So that was on a Saturday. By that stage, we'd been in and around the hospital for borderline two days. Numerous people had come to see Louise and myself and the rest of the family and support us. I think around dinner time on Saturday, I said, right, there's no point us staying here anymore. We've officially been told Louise has passed away. We've done all the organ donation stuff that needs to be done. It's it's time for us to say our goodbyes and leave. Now, I knew that the surgery wasn't going to occur till the Sunday, but I just wanted it to be a clean break and not have to come back to the hospital again. Both for myself, because I thought I'm not going to handle this again, another day this, and I didn't want her parents or the two boys having to go through it again either. Um, so I explained that to the nurses in the ICU, and they were fabulous. What I didn't know was one nurse in particular, I can't remember her name. She was just a beautiful, beautiful person. Before I'd had that conversation, she'd actually allowed Louise's mum to go and spend some individual time with Louise and lay on the bed with Louise. And she made the same offer to me which I took up. I actually went and laid on the bed with my head on Louise's chest and said goodbye. I gave the boys a similar offer, knowing that they were probably going to both say no, and they did. They probably don't remember it because of what we were all going through, but I know I offered it to them because it was offered to me. It was offered to a dad, and he didn't want to do it either. To her dad, sorry. So I said my goodbye, and we left. Surgery was done the following day um, where they operated on Louise and used her organs to transplant into six other people and save their lives. Two of them were children. So a few months later, I got a letter from Donut Life Victoria, which goes to all families after they've gone through a similar process to let them know this is what's happened with your loved one's um, organs. And it was basically her kidney went to an adult male. Her other kidney went to such and such. So, yeah, Louise passed away in the April of 2014. Um, leading into Christmas that year, which was her best time of year. It was always something very special to her. I got two letters. They're double-blind letters, so it's a letter from a, a recipient or their family, which is they've written, and it's in a sealed envelope. Then that envelope is put inside another envelope with a covering letter from Donut Life Victoria telling you what's potentially in the primary letter. And it's basically a, a very nice welfare thing to say, look, you don't have to open this. It could cause you some grief and revisiting and all that sort of thing. But I had to. So I read one letter, which was from the mother and father of a young boy who had had kidney issues his entire life. And 
he received one of Louise's kidneys and he'd been able to go swimming for the first time in his life. He was healthy. He was starting to play sports with friends. He would have only been four or five at the time. And they couldn't thank us enough, despite what they knew must have been horrendous for us. The other letter was from a lovely trainee nurse who was going to Melbourne University who'd had a double transplant. She'd received Louise's heart and lungs. And it changed her life. It allowed her to complete her nursing degree. And I'm assuming nine years down the track that she's looking after so many other people having lived it. Since that time, I've found out there's quite a close connection to somebody else that I actually know that has received um, one of Louise's organs and people don't know about it. We only confirmed it just before Christmas, last Christmas. I can't share it. It's, it's got to stay private, but it's an extraordinary set of coincidences that made the planets align for this person to receive one of Louise's organs. Amazing. Just phenomenal that I knew this person and had known this person before I'd known Louise. It's weird. Wow. Um, so, as I said, she saved six lives, which I knew very early on. About 12 months later, I got to know the staff at Donut Life Victoria, who are some of the best people I've ever met in my life. They're just beautiful people. Through them, I found out, which I'm allowed to find out, that just with Louise's skin and, um, or not a skin, sorry, but the ligaments and bone and other samples or, you know, things that she would, she donated, she positively impacted the quality of life of another 23 people, which I was astounded by. I, didn't, I, I sort of assumed it might be another two or three, but no, 23. So every single organ donor that has donated their organs but has also been in a position to help out with others, you know, other donations, um, which could be eyes, could be skin, which Louise didn't, there's such a bigger positive impact and, and ongoing for people's lives, people's quality of life. So people that have had horrendous injuries and get a ligament trans, you know, transplant or some bone tissue or, you know, things like that. It's just, you just can't believe what modern surgery can do and how Louise has helped people and all those other donation families have helped. I have never been so silenced in a podcast ever and I have never felt such a visceral emotional response to a story and only once before and I've done on my show over 600 episodes and, and heard a lot of touching, beautiful, sad stories but only once have my eyes welled with tears and that, they have several times in hearing that story and I, I don't even know what to say or ask about it. It is it is a lot. There's yeah. a lot to process and it is. Yeah. It is a feel good, but it is such a gut wrenching thing to realise how fast life can change. Yep. And it did for us and our entire family. I can look back upon it now and still well up myself. I felt myself welling up at one point and probably because I was feeling it, but I looked at you and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to make a cry. Um, which I did warn you about before we started. <laughs> but I, I'm i capable, and I know some families are not, some fa families who have lost a, lo a loved one like I have or like we have, and it's very difficult to get over. Louise's mum struggles with it every day. 
it's it's not something she'll ever let go. And she said it to me in a very polite and loving way one day. She go, And she's right. She goes, John, you'll never really know because you're not a mum. And I can't argue with that because she's dead right. She carried Louise for nine months. She raised Louise. She was always Louise's mum and still is to this day Louise's mum. My connection to Louise was I was her husband and I felt so privileged to be the one that, you know, was hopefully the love of her life because she was most definitely the love of mine. And so there's a hell of a lot of sadness when I look back at that time, but in the nine-plus years that have gone past, there's also so much good that's come out of it and the education side, which is why we're talking tonight. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've, I've done other presentations. I love doing it. I want to educate people about organ donation. It is a personal decision. But I didn't know enough and I thought I knew a fair bit. And I feel like that's the story, Louise's story, that I want to keep telling so that people at least have a better understanding and can have those conversations in the same way that Louise and I did. Yes, I want people to sign up, jump onto MyGov, jump onto Medicare and sign up if they're comfortable with being an organ donor. But what I really want them to do is have the conversations with their family, and I'm talking even the kids, as harsh as that might sound. Unfortunately, in this world, we lose kids way too often for silly things, silly accidents, they happen. But those kids have just as big a right as Louise did and every other donor to be a donor. And would the kids want to have the conversation with them? And and I've had it with you know, my stepsons, and I know what their wishes are, but they also know mine. Um, And I've found that really enlightening for me. Such a beautiful legacy to, and I feel like something that you guys can really hold on to, and I can only imagine, of course, that perhaps it gives you a sense of, Louise is still living. There's parts of her still living in the world There's, that she is yep. here. Yeah. And it's interesting because people have asked me, obviously I have that other personal connection with this. If I was to see that person tomorrow, I do not look at them and think of it in that way that that person's got part of Louise in them. I, I don't think of that person that way. It's just that they're living their life and they're capable of living their life because of a present that Louise gave them. The legacy that you just mentioned, that to me is the education and the information and the knowledge that I've been able to do on Louise's behalf. That to me is the biggest thing of all. That's Louise's legacy, getting getting it out. Do you feel like especially for those boys at that time that 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 like it also sounds like a really hard thing but in the middle of what was happening that it, you get to give them give them a sense of agency and purpose within something that was completely out of their control that had happened at the time no today yeah I, I, they're both old enough now you know um the youngest one's 21 now yeah. Um, and his brother's 27. So it, as we said earlier, time, where, where does time go? Time flies. Yeah. But now I, I would hope for both of them, and, and as they mature, you know, into adults and have their own families, they will be more aware and comfortable with what decisions they helped make because they did help make those decisions for their mum at that time. And, and I think they should be proud of themselves for what we all had to go through. But you're talking about two young boys getting something thrown at them that no young child should ever get. But they did and they had to survive it. And just hearing, you know, sitting and listening to your story and and obviously you you picture things and you you play a movie in your mind when you're hearing a story, I do, when I'm hearing a story like this and I, I, you know, there's like these flashes of, 
how it might be playing out, like the reality of it, because there's there's hearing the story and what's happening, but then there's the the almost the playing of the reactions and the feelings and the, the trauma and the dissociation and the the awareness that look at look at you guys sitting one day everything's normal and then you're spending two days sitting together discussing things in a state of shock and trauma like the, yeah. that you probably don't even realize you're in while you're in it like you, you your ability to function like thank goodness for the work you do and the training that you have in certain situations because yeah. your your ability to manage you and your emotions and the way you function in that moment would have had a, a huge effect on those around you. Yeah, and strangely enough, on myself at the same time, which is that's been one of the difficult things I've had to comprehend myself because, like, I was I was a wreck, and I know I was a wreck, and and I can only think it was Louisa's influence on me, and one of my sisters in particular. She said she changed you, she made you better, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Louise made me a better person without without a doubt. I think the training that Tomo and myself and all the other coppers and those that have been coppers in the past, yeah, we, we learned to deal with those things better, which probably did help me, but I'm still not sure how I did it. To be honest, I, yeah, I, yeah, because I, I was, I was a wreck. I was balling my eyes out regularly. Um, I'm having to tell people and take phone calls and, you know, I had to tell a mum and dad when they showed up. I think we've just lost her. And I, I pretty much knew it, as I said, because when we left the Dandenong Hospital, I knew I'd lost her then. You know, that that was that was logic hitting me, but my emotions hiding it. You know, and the reality for a lot of us, I'll never forget on the Saturday, as I said, she stopped breathing on her own, five, five thirty on the Friday afternoon. It wasn't till the following morning when the doctors actually came in and we had a whole lot of family and friends there and they officially said we've we've just been with Louise and we've now officially pronounced her deceased and the whole room just lost it. But the reality was we knew that. We actually yeah. knew that. But when you get that official notification by the doctors, that just really does hit you on the head with the reality aspect and, and it hurts. and. It's just shattering, emotionally shattering. So, yeah, I think you're right, Tiff, that part of my training, being a cop, seen it, done it, been through that type of thing before, just not the emotional connection because it's my wife. Yes. So I've got no doubt that helped me, but also knowing what Louise wanted as far as her organs and helping others, that helped make that whole organ donation process um, so much easier because I didn't have someone coming up to me at the worst time of my life asking that difficult question, oh, would you consider donating your loved one's organs? Because yeah. they obviously can't ask the loved one. Yeah. And that's the thing in, in Australia at the present time, for your listeners that aren't aware, you can override the person's decisions. That, that's still allowed. So I could have overridden all of Louise's decisions, but the fact that we talked about it in a conscious state at a moment in time where whenever we had that discussion, I can't remember when we had it, I just knew we had it. And it's one of those things you don't think will ever have to be actioned. But for us, it did. But knowing what she wanted knowing what her wishes were, knowing she didn't want to donate her eyes, that sort of thing, that allowed me to go through that organ donation process to help others, which is what she would have wanted. And then we've all been able to live, Louisa's entire family, myself, her sister, her mum and dad, the boys, we've all been able to live the last nine years knowing we gave Louise the opportunity to make the last decision she could ever do, and that was donate. And yeah. that's all I want 
others to learn from Louise's story is that talk to your loved ones. The chance of you being an organ donor is actually very, very small. If I remember my training properly from Donut Life Victoria, you're actually four times more likely to receive something than you are to give. That's just the bare statistics. So you're actually four times more likely to need something. But have those discussions with your loved ones so that you know what they want. And at the same time, they know what you want. They know what your wishes are too. And that way, if you are ever in that situation that I've been in, you at least know what they wanted and you can help them with the final decision they can make while they're in this realm, whatever your beliefs are, allow them to have that final voice. We take so much for granted and we, most people I know are striving to have a sense of meaning and purpose and make a difference in the world and it's, you just highlighted it so well. You know, I sit here and I think, like, I know I know if my parents want to be buried or cremated, but I don't know. Like, my mum tells me that all the time. She tells me what she wants. Yep. But I I couldn't tell you right now if she's wishes to be an organ donor, let alone all of the variables yep. you've talked about. Yeah. Yep. When you just mentioned um, Louise's mum and in January this year I – went to a friend's funeral of his son. He buried his son of 41 years and it was – there is no injustice like like seeing something like that. And it's – it's grief is weird. I find it weird. I remember sitting at my 99-year-old grandfather's r- room this year, early this year, and glancing over and seeing a photo of my nan on her wedding day, black and white photo – and she's been passed for a few years now. And I just I just went on down with a little thought rabbit hole of like, wow, he lived she was in his life longer than most people have been alive. Yep. <laughs> like yeah. that long. Yeah. And and because they're elderly, it's just accepted. But the grief has to be more. Doesn't the grief has to have to be more if you've spent that much time with someone? And I agree. yeah. And the same with I watched I watched his name was John too. I watched John speak at his son's funeral and I hadn't met the son and my heart just crumbled and but you know what's beautiful? He's he's coming on the show soon. This year he and this was organized before his son had passed. He donated his own kidney for, for someone who's had kidney and it's amazing. You know, That's and amazingly brave to do that and go through the <laughs> the go through the process. Yeah. Oh, wow, this is a this is a real perspective changing kind of life changing conversation. And that's all I want people to do, Tiff, is to hear this, hear Louise's story, as I keep saying, not mine. Hear Louise's story. I'm just her voice because she doesn't have it anymore. And do exactly what you're doing right now. Think. And think, what do I want? And do my family know what I want? And do I know what my family and my loved ones want? And if the answer to that's no, as hard as it is, as much as we want to avoid it because we don't like talking about death, we we need to have the conversation. And if someone was to come up to me to go, hey, I did what you said, John. And I took Louise's advice and I had that conversation with my loved ones. But you know what? I don't want to donate anything. I'd be so happy because they've had the conversation. And that's all I'm asking you to do. Have the conversation, know what your personal wishes are and let your loved ones know and vice versa. And if you want to be an organ donor, great. Fabulous. Thank you. Odds are you won't be. You know, the, the odds are so far against us. What are the stats? Do you know the stats of the yeah. percentages of, yeah? So it, it's going to be quite surprising. So like Louise, when we lose that loved one, it basically has to occur in the hospital because it's got to be in a controlled environment where the organs remain viable. So that 
means you're literally limited to hospital, people passing around hospital, and then it's only just over 1%. Wow. Wow. For all different sorts of circumstances. But part of those circumstances is that the family don't know the answer. Now, that's not going to knock that's not going to really knock the numbers up to any great degree, but we also know that we are losing people because they need an organ and they can't get one. Yeah. And again, Louise and others like her, Louise saved six lives, six. Yeah, and impacted. So the loss of one saved six. And it's only saved six in the short term. We all are going to pass away at some point, but, that's six that are going on living who may not be here today. And there's so many other families that have been just like myself and Louise that they've made the hard choice. They've allowed their loved one to donate their organs and there's other families out there living better and more normal lives, such as the little boy who can swim like that. That that, well, me. that part almost made me cry, by the way. Yeah. yeah. He drew a photo. He, he, sorry, he drew a picture. I've actually got it. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. He drew a picture. And he's the second Christmas, his parents sent it to me. And it's wonderful. It's, it's one of the most precious things I've got, without a doubt. And I take wow. it with me. Every time I do a proper presentation, I take it with me. And I take the letters, and if people are up to it, because this is heart-wrenching and difficult, particularly when I'm in person with people, yeah, your emotions really come to the fore, such as yours have done tonight. And I'm sorry for doing it, but I'm also not, because to me it shows me that Tiff, who I've only met online tonight, is a beautiful person herself. Well, I, I love I love to feel deeply, and I think that that whether it's whether it's love or grief or compassion or empathy or fear or anxiety, we have to we should delve into it and we should appreciate yeah. it and and it Embrace always it. yes it always gives us perspective. The my favourite privilege about sitting in these conversations and having them is the ability to wear your shoes and look through your eyes and feel they're not your emotions, they're mine, but feel emotions, the the emotions of your story. And that changes my life because that changes me. That changes what I know, what I feel, what I think, whether I'm super conscious of it or not really conscious of it at all. You know, you never, you never know the difference that you're making. It's incredible. You're incredible. I'm, but see, this is where I say you are, Tiff, because allowing me to speak and for us to do this tonight, how many people are going to hear this and hopefully have that conversation now yeah. that they may never have had? And that probably includes you. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. And that's that's all I want, and that's pretty much all anybody that I've met through this entire process, and I've met a number of recipients that have got nothing to do with Louise, but I've met them, you know, because there are events. I've met other families that are on the same side as mine, that they have been with a loved one who they've lost, but they've made that tough decision. And all all of us want is for people to know enough to make a conscious decision, and that's all we want. And to love other people that you'll never know because that's what we're talking about. We're, you know, Louise didn't know any of these people, even the person from my history yeah. had never met that person, Amazing. never met that person, but she's the reason that person is alive and with us today. Wow. Do you have any, do you do, you do socials? Do you have anything you'd like to direct people to, to follow or? So no, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not into that world. Um, that's Thomas' world, and he's <laughs> he's very very good at it. He's great at it. It's not my thing. My thing is doing this, and the staff at Donut Life Victoria they 
they know that I'm a bit unusual in that it's very difficult for people on Louisa's side, so being the donor, to speak. Yes. For me, early on it was cathartic, yeah. no doubt about it. But there was also that I wanted people to know it and I know Louise would want people to know it, so that's what I continue to do this day. And But I'm, I'm unusual because it's very difficult for people being on this side of it to be able to do and speak and, and, and talk about the loss of their loved one. So helping out Donut Life Victoria when I can, I love doing it. I love doing the media articles. I I've been to um, three different hospitals around Melbourne and spoken to and, and given presentations about Louise to nurses and doctors um, so that they understand the emotional side that you you now yes. get. Yes. And just so that they're not overly clinical and they're, they're not. They're actually not. They're just wonderful people. Yeah. But just to give them that little bit more insight and let them know what we might be thinking because – I can't speak on behalf of every family that's been in that situation. We human beings, we all handle it differently. Our emotions, as you said earlier, are very different at times. Yeah. Some of us feel things a bit more deeply at times and certain emotions get to us. You know, for the first at least two and a half years after I lost Louise, I would go to the cemetery every second Friday. And it was every second Friday because every second Friday, the youngest of the two boys went to his biological dad's for that weekend. So that was my time to go and visit Louise. Yeah. But that was every fortnight for two and a half years. And my emotions were really raw at those times. I, I had times where I couldn't drive home. I had one in particular. I left Louise's gravesite crying so much I actually had to stop the car and just sit in my car. 15, 20 minutes, I, I literally couldn't see because uh, the tears were so much, the emotions were so heavy at the time. But it's been over nine years and it's still, you know, I can feel it myself now, but I'm better for it because of educating people about Louise and how she's able. So all that positivity from such a and horrendous situation, losing my wife, I, I've turned it into a positive, which is where she made me better. Yeah. I remember asking this question to Alex Presney, who lost his brother in the in the highway accident. Yep. Where do you find her? Is it was the cemetery where you found her? So initially, yes. Now, no. I think that was just a place initially knowing that that's where we buried her. If I need her now or want her now, I close my eyes and she's there. And it doesn't usually matter where I am. Yeah. It's just that I know she's here. You know, if you listen, I'm tapping my chest. Um, but, yeah, it's literally I can just close my eyes and she's there. Yeah. So, yeah, she's she's with me everywhere. And she always will be. You know, that is, I've accepted it. That, that's the case. So, yeah, the, the cemetery was that initial place, but I think that was where I shed my grief more than anything. And I yeah. don't have this overwhelming desire to keep going to the cemetery. But that's me because I know, I know other people that have lost loved ones that do, They and they will do it for years and decades in some cases. Yeah. I don't need to. We or I go – the boys don't always, but we'll go to her, the cemetery on her birthday and Christmas. But that's more out of respect for her because that's where she is. But I don't need to go out there anymore, whereas I did in the first couple of years. And how did you how did you find grief when you look back now? I mean, the question I was going to ask is just sounds weird. <laughs> I was going to say, like, is it what you expected? I don't think we, anyone knows what to expect, but did it, was it, I guess, what was what was that experience for you? It wasn't what I expected because I'd lost both parents a few years earlier within nine months of each other. Oh, wow. 
no, this was oh, overwhelming. It really was. Yeah, because you're not just grieving the person, you're grieving you're grieving, I think, the loss of certainty. When something like that can happen so quickly, there's more than just the yep. one thing that you're grieving, I think. Uh yeah, and um it's gonna sound strange, but I reckon you're gonna get it. People say the little things. It really is the little things. And the one that um I don't miss it anymore but it's probably because I've been grocery shopping so many times since. But by God, the first few years, I missed her and me going grocery shopping because she'd put her arm through mine and sometimes put her head on my shoulder while we're pushing a shopping trolley around Coles or Woolworths, for God's sake. (laughs) Yep. But it's that little thing like that, that would get me, that, that, got me more and for longer than going out to the cemetery. Those oh. little things. Yeah. And I think any any person that's been through what I've been through, it is it's those little things when you you turn a corner expect to see them there but they're not. Yeah. yeah. Going to event Christmas, Christmas is always hard. Yeah. We she introduced it to me and and it became our thing. She always watched um, the movie It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. That was her thing. We met. It became our thing. I still do it. Love that. Christmas Eve, every year it goes on. <laughs> it just goes on. It, it's, it's still our thing. Yeah. And, again, that, that used to hit me every time I put it on. It, the last probably three, maybe four years, it hasn't but I still have to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's just a have to do it. The supermarket was another one. Some words that she could not pronounce. You're talking a highly <laughs> intelligent woman here, <laughs> highly intelligent woman. She was a psychologist. She was doing her doctorate, and she couldn't say ambulance. <laughs> She'd say ambulance. She couldn't pronounce it correctly. Oh. Some weirdest things. So you'd miss those sorts of things. Coppers will get this one. So we've been going out for a good two years at this stage. Now, do you know what a divvy van is? Yes. A police Not through experience. No, good. Good answer. Um, so most people know what a divvy van is. Now, a few times over the first couple of years that Louise and I were seeing each other, including after we got married, I thought I heard her say dippy van. <laughs> but I thought, no, no, you're just mishearing because you're driving the car or whatever. But one day she said it and went, you just said dippy van, didn't you? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, that's what it's called. And I said, no, it's a divvy van, it's V's. <laughs> and she goes, what does that mean? And I said, it stands for divisional because we're in divisions, police divisions, it's a divvy van. So then I had to flip it back and go, so why is it a dippy van? Her answer? Because <laughs> that's where you put the dips. <laughs> and I love how she's talking to a copper and she goes, yeah, because that's what it's called. Not is the, isn't that what it's called. No, that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> oh. So they're, they're those moments that still I still laugh. I'm tearing up now through laughter because it still makes me laugh all these years later because it's funny as. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, she, she mispronounced words. You know, she's, she's, well, she's just them. not good with first responder vehicles, it sounds like. Oh, the ambulance so. and the divvy, dippy yeah. van. Yeah, yeah. There was other words she couldn't pronounce, but, yeah, they were a couple of the best ones, I think. Oh, you're so right. You're so true. You know, and I love it as we kind of reminisce and laugh about things like that. I think it brings, well, for me, it brings attention to some of the dumb things that family, that I love. And I'm like, oh, they'll be the things. Yeah, they will be. Yeah, without a doubt. I had the most beautiful phone call with my dad the other day. He messaged me, said, oh, give me a call when you can. It's not urgent. Just thought of something and wanted to talk to you about it. He he listens to the podcast. He's come along for the whole ride with with this over the last few years. And 
And I rang him and he said, there's nothing really. He goes, but my, like I said, my pop turned 99 last year. Yep. So there's not many 72-year-olds that have got a 99-year-old dad that's getting around pretty no, that's fit and healthy. Fantastic. And he said, I go, I go to dad's place every couple of days, every two days, and, you know, I was just thinking I'll – I'll really cherish that when he's not around anymore. And what's special is knowing that now, like he's got the foresight to know mm-hmm. now because of conversations like this, this is what's yep. prompted his thought, which is why he wanted to talk to me about it. You know, he goes, I feel really lucky that I know that now in the moment so I can enjoy it and know that it's going to be even better when it's when yep. it's a memory that I can sit with. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah those, those conversations are not – just about organ donation, but just just talking to our loved ones, those conversations. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of those things I miss with her. We would talk about everything. And that's why I knew about the organ donation stuff, because we would talk about everything. Um, and sometimes that was it was just it. We were talking. That was it. That's all it needed to be. Didn't matter what it was about, we were talking. Yeah. And you miss those. You do, you, you know. Um you know, I I would say goodnight to her every night. Every morning before I got up to go to work, because quite often um, she'd be working afternoon, evening shifts, and I was predominantly day shift by that stage. I'd wake up in the morning when the alarm went off, which would usually wake her up because she was a lighter sleeper, but I'd kiss her on the shoulder and tell her I love her and say, I'll see you this afternoon. But that kissing on her shoulder, that was something I always did. That just stopped immediately. Just couldn't do it anymore. I, I mean, that's something, you know, that I missed as well. So just those little things that mean so much. And it's great that your dad realises it because yeah. you two can talk about so much now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've been amazing. You've you've over-delivered. I feel really good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for for not just the vulnerability in, in sharing with, with such detail everything that you've been through, but for everything you're doing around that space, like the impact you, you'll never know because of because because I'll never know the conversation, the ears that, and and the conversations that other no. people are going to have after hearing this one. No, it's a ripple. Well, I'm hoping with what you're helping me do because I so appreciate this opportunity, and that's why when Tomo first mentioned, I went, "Yeah, I'm in, I'm in," because it is about getting people to talk, and and even if it is just like you and I were talking then about your dad. And you having that conversation, it's got nothing to do with yeah. organisation, but but talk to your loved ones and yeah. and share the love and, and tell each other how much you mean to each other. If that heart snowballs, that's good enough. Love it. Well, thank you, John. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, everyone, go and have a conversation. Thanks for tuning in.